This is the Sharp End Podcast, and I am Ashley Sappy, your hostess for the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Designed and developed in the Swiss Alps, Mammut has been making the finest alpine equipment since 1862. Driven by a continuous quest for innovation, Mammut's technical clothing, footwear, climbing gear, avalanche safety, and alpine equipment are distinguished by the highest quality, functionality, and safety. They embody Swiss technology and perfection. Mammut, absolute alpine. Thank you to Vertical Medicine Resources and the Colorado Outbound School for being contributing sponsors of the Sharp End podcast. Today on the Sharp End, I have a returning guest. Last time we talked, he told me about an incident that happened up in Alaska in May of 2010 on a 2,500 foot snow and ice route called Freezy Nuts. And if you haven't heard that episode, I encourage you to go check it out. It's episode number four, titled Denali Ranger Dave Weber, A Day in the Life. So listen up and please enjoy. Perfect. Yep, my name's Dave Weber. Uh, I am one of the climbing rangers for the Park Service up on Denali, and then I also work as a flight paramedic for Intermountain Life Flight in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, thanks so much, David, for coming back on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back, and congrats on uh, finishing up 20-plus podcasts and trying to do it in the back of a van. I'm sure it doesn't help. It's exciting, uh, <laughs> editing on the airplane, and yeah, I mean, it's exciting. Um, so you're in the Tetons? Yep, uh, just up climbing in the Tetons for a couple of days before heading back to Salt Lake. Nice, cool. Um, yeah, so I got in touch with you a few days ago about uh, doing an interview with me about sort of general preparation of shit hitting the fan in the mountains or at crags. And um, you seem to be uh, well-versed. This is sort of your expertise. So I was hoping you could sort of give our listeners a rundown. I spent some time listening back on some of your prior podcasts and a couple common themes kept coming out. Either you or the people you were interviewing either spoke about things that went really well for them or in hindsight, some of the things that maybe they wish had gone differently or they'd hoped would go different in the future. Um, but those common threads seem to fall into kind of three major categories of, of kind of pretty common and simple tips and tricks, I think, that you can utilize um, the next time we all go into the backcountry. And those three broad categories that kept coming up over and over, one was partners, the second was responding uh, to an accident, and third was surviving an accident. And it seems like all those those kind of three broad categories, um, the stuff we'll talk about today is relevant, both if you happen to be the patient or the person who gets injured, or if you happen to be the partner who is thus then thrust into kind of the rescue or rescuer role. Um, so it seems like if we tackle it with those three broad headings, um, we can probably hit most of the things that, that kept coming up in some of your prior podcasts. So I think the first part to start with partners, um, I think it's really easy, and I've fallen prey to this a bunch of time, where you pick partners for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're more skilled than you in a certain area or whatever objective you're heading to, 
Um, and I, I think it can be really wise to pick partners, one, that are a good skill set match for you, but especially those partners that you have good communication with and also the ones that are willing to practice and prep for some of these emergency circumstances and the people that are willing to, to look at that side of the coin and say, hey, if something goes wrong here, are we ready to deal with it as a team of two or three people? Um, in reality, I think your partners are really your best and sometimes your only resource out there if something goes wrong. And the flip can be true as well, where you might be the only resource that your partner has if they are injured. Um, I, I'm a really big fan of the the quote that hope is a horrible risk management tool. And I, I, I really think so many times um, I found myself in a place where you're just hoping things go right and hoping everything goes well. And in reality, that hope is pretty useless, uh, both before and after something goes wrong. Um, so I think partners that are willing to prep and prepare with you to be ready in the event of something going wrong or, or is a great trait to seek out in somebody so you're partner. saying I shouldn't pick my climbing partners because I want them to be my rope gun? Ah, <laughs> uh, it's a tough one. As long as they're <laughs> skilled enough to deal or if you're ready to deal with whatever happens when they're up above you, that's fine. But I know we're all guilty of picking partners for the same reasons because we want to <laughs> fulfill some objective or something like that. And I think stepping back, and you hear it in a bunch of the podcasts you had already where People talk about, hey, in the future, I'll make sure that whoever I'm out there with can deal uh, should something go south. Uh, I think another trait that has been brought up a couple of times in your podcast along the lines with partners are not only those people that are willing to kind of prepare and, and train um, and keep skills refreshed and kind of rescue side of things, but also the ones that are willing to chat or have a debrief after the times that you go out together, the ones that are willing to be like, hey, did we make good decisions today? Are we communicating well? Did, or did we just get away with it today? I think there's a bunch, especially in the avalanche world, they talk about it where we don't always know if we made good decisions. Do we just get away with it and we happen to kind of thread the needle and not have a slide occur or not fall or whatever it is that we're trying to avoid. And I think having those conversations can be really good with partners after, after each outing to kind of just look at how things are going and are you a good partnership? And in reality, there's just going to be people that you don't mesh with and maybe their style and your style is really different, even if they're an awesome rope gun for you. Right. I mean, for me, I get most of my learnings out of um, yeah debriefs and, and reflections on learnings. I think all of us can probably agree that some of our best life lessons are when we've screwed up and those are the things that really stick with us and are the things that going forward are the things that kind of have that little like notch or reminder in the back of our head when that situation presents again, you're like, Oh yeah, I'm not going to do that again. Cause that ended really poorly the last time. And unfortunately we don't, we're not granted like a set number of screw ups before something goes really bad. And right. your first screw up might be the last screw up and that's the bummer. So I think using things like your podcast and accidents in North American climbing accounts and things like that, using other people's experience, like I don't need to screw up all those times for myself, but if I can read about other people's experience and 
kind of ingrain those into my own decision making. I think that's that can be really helpful uh, yeah. with partners going forward. Yeah. Um, I think the next thing in kind of the big picture, Ashley, is is the responding. So say we've picked our partner and, and we're stuck with that person for the day or the trip or whatever it may be. Um, when something does go wrong, I think the number one, and it's really cliche and common, you've probably heard it in every class and in every account, is just that idea of staying calm and staying safe. I think those should be your priorities. Um, the last thing your partner or you need is somebody who's all freaked out and and not really focusing on the things that need to be focused on. And, and especially on the safe side of things, when you see a friend fall or you see an avalanche occur that your partner's involved in or whatever it may be, it's, it's pretty anti-human instinct to chill out and stay there for just a minute and kind of survey the scene. Um, there's a couple podcasts that folks were talking about, you know, before they knew it, they were just jumping into whatever situation they found themselves in before they knew it, they're hands on with their patient and hadn't really just taken that brief pause to make sure that they're not going to put themselves into the same situation that their partner's in. So I think staying calm and staying safe is great for everybody involved. When you're freaked out, your patient's going to be freaked out. And if you get hurt, then you're really no use to anybody uh, kind of in that initial response. Um, we train with the Park Service quite a bit with uh, some different military units, and they're really fond of the mantra of going slow to go fast. And it's hard and seems counterintuitive, I think, at times, uh, that saying, but we all can probably think back on a time where if we just had taken a second and slowed down a bit, take 10 seconds to really kind of see what's going on, you'll probably do the right thing first instead of kind of sputtering around and doing a bunch of things really haphazardly instead of just that idea that really, if you want to get things done efficiently and quickly, just go slow and do it right the first time uh, can be really helpful. And I know a bunch of military outfits and Others kind of subscribe to that mantra of just go slow will end up resulting in you being able to go fast instead of that kind of frenetic movement <laughs> when you're responding. Right, or messing up and then having to redo it again the right way. You know, it's, uh, it's sort of like splinting. If you just don't take your time the first time with splinting an extremity really well, then you're going to have to redo it and you're going to cause that patient even more pain. Oh, totally. That's That's so... So true, Ashley, and I think we've all found ourselves in that that place where it's like, you know, the cumulative time of us fixing all of the times we've kind of half-assed done something when we could have just taken less time and done it right in the first place, right. and we'd be, <laughs> we'd be in a much better spot. <laughs> yeah, and so would your patient. They'd like you more afterwards. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think also in that responding side, of course, people think about, kind of the training side of this. And I think whenever you can get formal training, that's outstanding. And, but with that training, I think one, you should try and find trainings that combine skill sets. So if you can get a rescue class, that can maybe combine some rope rescue with some medicine or things like that. Because in reality, I don't think any of us will really find ourselves in a rescue scenario where it won't involve multiple disciplines. So some of those courses that really mesh those well, um, can be really beneficial to us. But 
that initial training is only a part of it. And like all our climbing skills or skiing or anything, avalanche assessment, all of those skills are perishable. So if you just take that initial training and then put it on the back burner for good, um, you're probably not going to have that skill set when you actually need it. So whether it's once or twice a season, trying to really refresh some of that initial training uh, will help you kind of keep those things fresh. And I think that's where we come back to partners and people that are willing to go over that stuff. And it doesn't have to be hands-on all the time. It can be just on the drive up the hill or on the drive to the crag where you kind of go over some of that stuff and refresh your brain a bit. But ultimately, I think in responding, if you don't have formal training and, and maybe it's on your to-do list and you just haven't gotten to it and you find yourself having to deal with some situation that you weren't planning on in your day, I think really trusting your gut. People have instincts about them to know whether something's really bad or it's not too bad. You know, you see someone's hurt or someone's sick and we have some ability, just whatever our gut is or that innate instinct to say, hey, you know what, you look really sick or you look really hurt or hey, you know what, that doesn't seem that bad. Maybe I don't know what to call it. Maybe I don't know how to fix it necessarily, but I can tell you when somebody's really sick or really hurt and I can tell you when they're not so. And I think if you can kind of separate your patients into those general categories of is this kind of the stay in the field, not too bad person, or is this a go, we got to get you out of here patient because they do seem bad? I think trusting your gut is something that you should kind of clue into. Uh, we heard it in a bunch of your podcasts where people kind of as soon as their partner fell or whatever accident happened to them, they knew that something in, in majority of the podcast, something really bad had occurred. And some of those folks had had no formal training or formal medical training or rescue training prior to that. But, but listening to kind of that inner voice that tells you, Hey, I need to do something here. Cause this doesn't, doesn't seem like something I can deal with here or that I can deal with, with my training that I've got. So I think trusting your gut and, and kind of going slow to go faster, probably the best advice we can give, um, in addition to staying calm and staying safe when you are responding to something. And not creating creating more patients. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Either ourselves or somebody else. Uh, you know, and it is, I, I said before, it's, it's really anti-human instinct, I think. As soon as we see somebody get hurt, especially if we know them, we just want to help. And oftentimes we'll get ourselves deeper into a situation and maybe into a place we can't back out of or get ourselves hurt because we just want to help and that's not a bad kind of instinct or a bad tendency we just need to fight against it a bit to make sure we're doing it as efficiently and safely as possible right yeah um and then i think the last broad category actually is the surviving piece and again i kind of looking at these three big categories both from the perspective of a patient and then also from the perspective of if you happen to be the partner that's that's charged with responding, uh, the first survival piece that was echoed over and over again um, in the podcast is is fight, fight to stay alive, fight to live, and that might mean you as the rescuer or you as the patient, but. Mental fortitude and physical toughness goes a long way, but just fighting to stay alive. Um, you know, you're in non-ideal scenario, non-ideal circumstance, and sometimes it's just digging deep and fighting. I think that it kind of makes the difference between those that make it and those that don't. Um, I think a good 
framework for looking at survival in general. And they talk about this in survival courses and it's the rule of threes. And I think this can help people kind of organize what needs to happen in reality to keep someone or yourself alive. And the rule of threes is, is kind of based off of time frames. And they say, you know, what can't you live without for three minutes? And that's oxygen. So first thing is remember to breathe and make sure that your patient can still breathe and they can still have a pulse. So that first piece hopefully is out of the way and we can just take that for granted. But if not, maybe that means rescue breathing for somebody or opening their airway or calming them down and reassuring them that, hey, the best thing you can do for me now is calm down and kind of get your breathing under control. So that first rule of three is I can't live more or typically without oxygen for, for more than three minutes. And then we look at three hours um, after that. And we can't typically survive in extreme environments for more than three hours. So they talk about shelter should be my second priority. So in a really hot environment, a really cold environment, you want to get shelter. Um, then you can go about three days without water. And so kind of your next priority would be finding or getting some fluids. And then fourth is you can go three weeks or so without food. But if you think about the last time you might have found yourself up against the wall and you're like, I don't know if we're getting out of here. Our first instinct is like stuffing our face. <laughs> and so in, in reality, I think those rule of threes are trying to force on folks like, hey, Actually, you should think about breathing and getting oxygen first, then shelter, then water, food. We can wait for, um, but kind of prioritizing kind of medical care first and then getting folks shelter. That also means getting them out of wet clothes or getting them out of the river, or getting them out of maybe the slide path, um, things like that. And then prioritize, prioritize some fluids, uh, getting those on board. And then lastly, food. Um, I think those can be really helpful kind of on the survival and those things like first fight and then kind of use those rule of threes to to help you prioritize things i got a really good mentor in the park service rescue scene named randy jackson that's been a real great teacher to a bunch of us that are currently working in the park service rescue programs and he always says don't count anyone out don't ever count anyone out. And I think that's really important, um, whether you're the patient or whether you're the rescuer that's helping to deal with your partner. Um, people will survive incredible injuries and amazing illness and, and make it out. And then there's people that you would look at and think ahead of time, oh, yeah, no problem, really skilled, and they are the ones that don't make it. And I think a lot of that comes down to some of that fight maybe just some of that grit to get through it. But I think not counting anyone out can be a really good mindset that, hey, no matter how bad it looks or how bad it sounds, like you just do your job and try and get them out. Like that's that's all you can do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and do your best, I think. Um, it makes and, me really think about uh, Ryan Montoya's story. Um, he fell off the backside of Pyramid Peak, like 2,000 feet and survived. And then, uh, and and yeah, he, he did the rule of threes, just like you said, and he made it out and yeah, like he is an amazing survival story. Yeah. And I think it it was great to hear his perspective too. And it seemed like both he and some other folks reported that you just need tasks. You just need something to focus on and Mm -hmm. something to do. If you sit there and 
focus on, oh my gosh, my friend's super hurt, my friend's super sick, or I'm in that situation, that's not really productive. But instead, just kind of have this tick list. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go down and I'm going to give myself some jobs and some tasks and just get that stuff done. Yeah, some micro and, goals. Like, I'm yeah. going to get my body 50 feet down the hill. Right. And then once yeah. I get there, I'm going to celebrate. And then I'm going to get my body 25 feet down the hill. And then I'm going to celebrate. Right. And I think to the outside, I know I heard a story about uh, that canyoneer who got his arm stuck in the rock down in Utah and ended up having to cut his arm or cut his hand off. And um, I heard him give an interview where somebody just asked the question, like, I could never do that. And he's like, you know, I bet you would really surprise yourself if you were in a spot where your choice was sit here and die or do something that to the outside world seems really extreme. He's like, I didn't make this decision in the first five minutes or even in the first day. But after sitting there and being like, I'm just going to sit here and die versus doing something that, you know, seems rather extreme. He's like, in the end, that seemed like the most common sense, logical decision to make. And I think the same holds true for whatever the scenarios that folks have found themselves in in your podcast where it's like, yeah, 50 feet, maybe that's all I've got. And that seems like this this really tangible goal for me. So just have that tick list of stuff you can get done to keep yourself occupied, but also moving forward and progressing. And I think the last thing, Ashley, with all of this and, and not to end on a, on a kind of sour note, but I think there are times where maybe the best thing for you to do as a rescuer, or as a partner is to just comfort the dying. If it's one of those scenarios where you find yourself or your gut's telling you this is really bad and their mental status is changing and it seems like they're going downhill, there are times where that task list and busying yourself need to take a backseat because you might or you potentially could be that last person that has contact with your partner. And at some point, if you if you feel like that's the scenario you're in is don't don't let the kind of training and rescue um, supersede your need to be a good friend and a good human being to that person. Because there are times and there are scenarios where there's not good outcomes and, and people aren't going to make it out. And maybe the best thing you can do and the best care you can provide is just being there with your friend. And, and I think that's a really important aspect that's often overlooked and we don't talk about a lot and we don't focus on in in many kind of formal rescue curriculums or things like that but that's very much the right thing to do um, depending on your scenario but I think there's a bunch you can do before that like I mentioned picking great partners and knowing how to respond well and and really fighting for your own or your your partner's survival uh, that hopefully come come well before that point so what are some things that come well well before that point? Like what are some trainings that our listeners can take um, before they go into the mountains, before they hit the crag, so they're, uh, they're ready for um, anything that does potentially happen? Great question. I, and I think I mentioned before that whenever you can find agencies or organizations that offer kind of the combined trainings, that's great. So when you're searching people's websites or training providers' websites, if it says it combines a couple disciplines, those are outstanding. Um, kind of the skill sets, I think, if we focus on the climbing side of things, I think 
any wilderness medical course is a good thing. And there's courses that range from, uh, you know, a few hours to two days to, to the full 10 day wilderness first responder. And I think whatever you have time and resources to, to put energy and your money into, um, is well worth it. And especially a wilderness based course, because it gives you kind of the ability to improvise and prioritize, um, the things that are really going to make a difference in patients. And then I think on the climbing side is, is looking at, there's a bunch of self rescue courses out there and things like that, that will help you get out of kind of the rope scenarios that you might find yourself in with a leader fall or if somebody falls below you and kind of how you would go about accessing some of those patients. And I think we heard about almost all of those things at some point or other in the previous podcast where they were like, I just didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. or I just had to tie this rope off because I didn't know. And so I think one, the ability to treat a patient once you're on scene or help treat and prioritize your own injuries if that's the scenario. And two, just being a bit more familiar with kind of the self-rescue side of, of the rope scene would be helpful. There are books on all of those things. And I think the books can be either a great precursor to a course to get you kind of spooled up before you head into a training, or they can help to um, kind of refresh some of those concepts. But I don't think um, you can count on any text or any video to to kind of put those skill sets or ingrain those skill sets in you. So really taking some formal training um, would be recommended in those two disciplines, I think, for the climbing arena. What kind of advice do you have for us who are packing our medical kit to bring to the crag? What kind of stuff should we put in there? Only put things in your kit that you cannot improvise, like things that I can't make, say, a CPR mask out in the back country. I can't make tape out in the back country. Right, and yeah. so things that you absolutely cannot improvise should go in there. And then as many things as you've got in your kit that can be used for multiple purposes, the better. Because with all of our kits, you we've all taken a class and you come out of that class and you're like, I'm gonna carry all of this stuff. And then you don't use it for a while and then a year later or even five weeks later you're like, I didn't use that stuff in the last five weeks. I'm not carrying this anymore. I'm carrying less of it. So fine-tune your kit so that it's manageable and something you don't mind just having with you at all times Um, because you will want it when something goes wrong but it's really hard to keep putting it in your pack when you keep not using it especially if it's big and bulky and heavy so really try and streamline it down to stuff that you can you can use for multiple things and you can improvise uh, kind of a bunch of different treatments or, or rescue techniques with And I would love it if you can leave us with your favorite quote. Oh, hope is a horrible risk management tool. Thank you again, Dave Weber, for sharing your knowledge with the climate community. And thank you. Yeah, you. The person who is listening to this episode right now. I appreciate it so much. And if you like what you hear please leave me a review on iTunes. It doesn't take very long, and it turns out, reviews go a long way. If you love The Sharp End, consider joining the American Alpine Club, which makes this podcast possible. Members automatically get $12,500 in rescue coverage. So join or renew at AmericanAlpineClub.org. And let's not forget... 
thanks to the sponsors that actually make this happen. Mammut, Vertical Medicine Resources, and the Colorado Outbound School. Vertical Medicine Resources is a company specializing in medical solutions for climbers. If you check out their new book called Vertical Aid, you'll learn more about chronic and acute injuries common to climbers and alpinists. The Colorado Outbound School has been changing lives through challenge and discovery for more than 55 years, offering wilderness expeditions in Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Alaska, and Ecuador. Courses range from 8 to 81 days in length, from ages 12 through adult, and include backpacking, mountaineering, rafting, canyoneering, and even rock climbing. Visit them at cobs.org to plan your next adventure. Until next time, play hard and be smart.